Hi, it's Paul Camillos. Welcome to Series 5 of Shooting the Breeze. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin as we talk to inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends behind the scenes and at the grassroots of the game. This marks the start of our fourth year of covering women's hoops and women in hoops. And throughout the series, we welcome experts like Lyndon Moore from New Zealand and other special guests from across the world to get a global picture of the game. During this series, we'll take a closer look at the grassroots and the passionate people at the community level. And of course, the 30th edition of the FIBA Women's Asia Cup was recently held in Sydney, where the Opals took bronze and Asia's best players put on a show. Hit that subscribe button and to show your support, rate and leave us a review on iTunes so we reach more listeners. My job is to make them better to achieve their goals. It's never been about, hey, if you don't win, I'm not going to get that job or I'm not going to get an extension. It's never been about that. So to me, it's always look after the players first, do the right things by them, coach them the right way, play the game the right way and be respectful to the game. That's brought me so much joy and luck and I love the game. For this episode, we're joined by Paul Gorris, two-time WNBL championship winning head coach of the UC Caps, who's currently assisting former WNBA champ Tanisha Wright at the Atlanta Dream. It's a fascinating conversation, not just about being a coach, but also his approach to coaching women and developing meaningful relationships within teams and with a stellar cast of our elite female ballers. Securing back-to-back championships, he's known for his experience as part of a winning team and culture. In this episode, he shares his thoughts on what's needed for and from his players to win, also giving us a real look at the person and what makes him tick. We also get some fascinating behind-the-scenes glimpses of life on the road with our women's national teams, some highlights including the Opals Bronze at Asia Cup in Jordan and that awesome silver medal at the 2018 FIBA Women's World Cup in Spain. We're grateful for Gorry's time and especially giving us a look into the very competitive WNBA. And don't miss Kia Nurse's take on his fashion game. Enjoy. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin, all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, it's Paul Gorris, assistant coach of the Atlanta Dream. Paul, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being on board. So it's going to be interesting getting your, your views on both, you know, WNBL, WNBA, and also, you know, how you got into coaching as well, because it's quite an interesting story from what we've been able to glean from looking through our research. So let's just sort of start off with how you got into coaching. Yeah, uh, interesting story, which is I, like I get asked a lot and it's really by accident is uh, I used to ride to practices with my brother, my younger brother at the time, uh, and go and watch his practices uh, and they didn't have a coach at the time. So I was like 17, he was like 14 and he, he didn't have a coach for his team. And so the club came to me and said, oh, would you coach his team? And at first it was like, no way. You know what teenage boys are like is brotherly love wasn't a big thing back then and it was fights on the way to school fights on the way home as we rode home so 
after a few weeks, I relented and, and gave in to kind of help coach his team because they didn't have a coach and they'd just be running around the basketball court of an afternoon. So I kind of fell into coaching that way. I was kind of like forced into it because um, I had to. There was no one else who was going to do it. And then slowly I, I enjoyed it more and more. And I wasn't a great player. I wasn't going to be a, a player of any uh, great ilk to earn a professional or even be semi-professional. And so uh, once I, I left school and started the job and I knew that basketball, I, I think I quit playing when I was 21, 22 because I just wasn't going to be that good. And I just kind of fell into more and more coaching and delving into, I guess, the art of coaching and reading a lot of books because I'm old. There was books back then. It wasn't the internet. Um, and reading up a lot about basketball and drills and coaching and then got opportunities not just with my club team, but after a couple of years of coaching with Townsville rep teams, I think my first rep coaching job was under 14 boys division three, going to a state championship. And then after a couple of years of doing that, I went from coaching the rep under 14 boys division three to under 18 boys division one, which was a, a shock. Um, and I guess I was thrown into that and thrown into different coaching jobs and circumstances that really, I guess, projected my ladder on the way through all of my coaching journey through club in Townsville, representative in Townsville, uh, Queensland state teams, and then obviously with the national teams and AIS and further on. So I kind of fell into it is, is how I, I term it. So I'm kind of interested in, in talking a little bit about how you made your way into the WNBL because one of the things that you know people tend to lose sight of is the history of the league. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the league. Yeah, I guess I was scholarship coach at the AAS in 2000 with the men's program uh, and then went back to Townsville and then came back to the Institute in 2003 as Marty Clark's assistant with the boys program. Um, and I was with the boys program for 10 years there. I um, was fortunate enough for those that remember the Cannons were still around then. And then obviously the Canberra Caps and me just being a, a basketball-like junkie, I used to be at the Institute and go and watch, you know, the Cannons games, go and watch Caps games, go and watch Caps practice. I, you know, I befriended Graffy just to be able to talk about coaching and basketball and, you know, she was of great help during that time. And then obviously after 10 years with the boys program as an assistant, I went to be the, the COE when it changed um, hands to Basketball Australia. I was the COE head coach with the women's program for three years. And then during that time, I guess that spanned 13 years, I was at the AIS and I was getting kind of like, not itchy feet, but I, I needed a new challenge and needed a refresh. Um, and at that time, the, the Caps job came up and I had a phone call from um, Joe Roth, who was uh, the GM at the time of the UC and UC Capitals and asked if I'd interview for the job or was interested. And I guess it was right timing, right place. I love Canberra. The Caps were kind of, you know, my team because I'd spent 13 years there poaching at the Institute. So... I guess it was right timing, right place, right situation. And it was just, uh, I, I guess I, I went for the interview and was fortunate enough to get that job. And that's how I got into WNBL. So it was that, that like a long-term thing of coaching, but only, I guess, three years of coaching with the women's program. But obviously being a fan of WNBL and women's basketball and just basketball in general and coaching, that's how I, I kind of got into the WNBL. And switching from, you know, sounds like you started coaching boys and men first, and including your long stint at the AIS with the men's program too, and then switching into WNBL. Uh, what was that like? Because uh, I know that some people prefer to 
approach men or women based on style and preference and experience, whatever. But was it a natural kind of shift for you to go from men's to women's? Yeah, I guess when I went back to Townsville, I did. I was an assistant with uh, the state league or what's now the NBL one. I was an assistant there for two years with the women's program there in NBL one or or QBL when it was called that. I did a couple of years of ITC head coach, which was obviously coaching uh, girls and boys. And I did, I can't remember, uh, two or three years coaching Division One women in Townsville. So I'd had some experience, obviously, coaching females and coaching women, but not at that level. And I guess the interesting thing for me is I had no experience in WNBL. It wasn't as if I was coming from being an assistant who knew how the league worked, knew how scouting worked, knew how teams worked and all of that. So that was, I guess an adjustment for me coming in new not not you know not even knowing what what the WNBL looked like from afar other than just going and watching games so graphy was of great help um in helping me through that and i met with her quite a few times even before and after the interview process and for years on just getting advice and feedback from her but also i was lucky enough to have someone like carly wilson who was on the last year you know, before she retired playing and she was of great help both on and off court to me with the WNBL and, and navigating all through that. So it was kind of my first year was a little bit of just learn on the run and take in as much as possible and lean on some people for some help and some guidance. Sorry, a question I like to ask a lot of coaches who we know, who we have on the podcast, who have also got experience of coaching men and women. What is your perspective on the similarities and differences between coaching men and women? Yeah, I, I guess the thing is, for me, the game is the game. It's basketball. It's not It's not rocket science. It's not anything special. We try, and I, I think some coaches or some people make it out bigger than what it is. It's X's and O's, and it's basketball, and it's strategy. The game doesn't change. I guess the difference for me is I found very early on the girls want to be coached. They, they want to be better. They're great listeners, and they do what's required and what's asked. I think sometimes... <laughs> You get, and especially coaching teenagers too, uh, you get the guys who are very much ego-driven and think that they know it all and, and think that they can they can do anything, whereas the girls are very much, you know, want to be held accountable, want to be coached, want to be better. And I think the biggest thing for the three years that I found at the Centre of Excellence was trying to get the girls to believe how good they are and how good they could be. And I used to have a saying with some of us, it's okay to be good. You know, you don't have to be embarrassed about being good. You can set a bar high for yourself and for women's basketball and for female athletes by being good. You shouldn't be ashamed of being good. And I think that was a big learning curve for me for the three years, And as I said, in the COE, was just giving them confidence and belief that it was okay to be good because the guys had the ego and belief that they were good no matter how good or bad that they were. It's interesting you say that because I remember coaching juniors back in my younger years and it was really interesting watching at training when one of the players would do something really great and everyone would celebrate and they'd get so self-conscious about it and then would not want to do it again because of the praise that they got. It was a really weird backwards thing and I, I've noticed the same. I've actually only noticed that when coaching young females rather than young males. Young males, they want the hype. They want the rah-rah. Yeah, exactly exactly they they want the adulation and the attention where and it's just and it dawned on me i think the, the greatest story that'll probably stick with me forever in that regard was chantelle horvat who was a big country kid um who was at the coe came back from a, a state camp uh one time and she was like oh gory i did the 
between the legs behind the back and shot it and made my three. And she was like, oh, I didn't know like what to do. And I was like, see, but that's the thing. It's okay to be good, Chantel. It's okay to do the things that you've been working on. But for her, it was like, oh, I felt embarrassed because it was like I was showing off. And I was like, that's where I was like, no, it's okay to be good. It's okay to do those things and be good. So I'm really curious about this bit. Do you think over the years that you've been watching players develop that the attitude is starting to change and that women are more are starting to become more accepting of the fact that they are good? Yeah, I think that definitely with, I guess, greater social media presence these days, the sport, like a lot more female sport on TV and accessible, you know, free-to-air or pay TV. But it's also some of them didn't grow up in the era, I don't think, of watching the Lauren Jacksons and the Pennies and the Christy Haribus who were super competitive, who believed that they could do anything, the Michelle Timms, all of that era, that just had that belief and that competitiveness. Like Those kids growing up probably didn't see them, didn't see those role models like playing. So that kind of generation missed out seeing what players could do or how players could be regardless of sport, gender, whatever it may be. So I think it's important now through, uh, as I said, social media and now the accessibility that everyone has to women's AFL, you know, WNBL, uh, women's soccer, cricket, whatever it may be. There's just a lot more platform and, it, and it's like it's out there a whole lot more that I guess that now females have got role models and, and can see that, one, you can make a living, but, two, it's okay to be really good. I just want to go back to this that period where you took over at the Caps because the club was coming off a poor run and actually moved out to Tuggeranong as well. So, you know, there was it was moving from a big stadium to a small stadium that had a bad run. And it was probably something that, you know, Canberra wasn't really used to, given the history of the club. But when you walked in there in that first season, how did you feel the pressure was on you? Actually, look, I didn't think I, – I didn't put any pressure on myself mm. um, because I knew that at the time when I'd spoken to Joe Roth about the program and where it was heading and obviously where it was being is like – I never wanted to use the, the phrase of uh, a rebuild because to me a, a rebuild is an excuse to lose games and to me a rebuild is, oh, we're not going to win much and I was just like, no, we're coming in to refresh the program but it's not rebuilding um, and I never ever wanted to use those words. So I think I was fortunate enough, as I said, to have Carly Wilson playing her last year. We recruited fairly well in my first season. We got Mariana Tolo back. It was a stalwart of the Caps and someone that I'd coached since she was 12 years old and obviously just being uh, an Australian at her size and her skill set and her leadership was something great and then recruited Lauren Mansfield and Michaela Roof and just got some really good pieces together that, you know, we finished fifth in my first season and we lost, you know, our second last game of the season to Adelaide, which put us out of the playoffs but we were right there, and I think that just kind of re-energised, I guess, Canberra, the Capitals. And, and sometimes, too, regardless whether it was graphic or not, sometimes you just need a, a new voice and a refresh of ideas, coaching, personnel, whether that had been players or coaches. I think the club just needed a refresh. And I guess I, I came in at the right time, but was also very mindful about uh, educating the players through my time that I was there about what the Caps' history was and where the Caps come from and what they stood for and what they built and what Graffy had built over those years. So 
each year and each team was always made aware during my tenure there about the Caps history and the Caps players that had gone before them. And we've touched on history a couple of times here, and I'm kind of curious to talk about this for a little bit. Sometimes I feel that the, the history of the WNBL doesn't necessarily get the attention that it deserves, and it's it's not kind of promoted as much as it as it should be among the players and among the fans as well so that people understand that you know it's been around for a long time it is a great league you, you mentioned you know lj penny um christy harrower all those players that you know if you know the wnbl and you, you follow it you know pretty regularly you'll know the names but it seems that maybe we could do a better job of promoting the history of the league to let newer players coming in to the sport understand the legacy that's there? Most definitely. And I think that's what, and you know, it's not just, I guess, the younger generation, but it's been generations before too, is I, I just don't think that people really respect and understand what people have done both from a administration perspective or playing perspective to build the league to allow players right now to play in the league and get what they're given is I'm sure in Jacinta, your era is like the the development players weren't getting paid, whereas now they're up to 15, 18,000, whatever it is. And I'm like, they need to be, yes, rightfully so, they should be paid, but it's also paid homage to the people that have gone before them that built the pathway for them to be able to come in and at least earn some money in the sport. Yes, should it be better? Could it be better? Yeah, but like, Let's not forget about what the past and what the history and what the players before have done to support the league and to grow the league to where it is today. And I agree, like a better education, um, better media, better presence in around where the league has come from and how it's grown, especially as I don't think it's out there enough. You know, just and just celebrating players. To me, celebrating some of the great players that have been through the league, some of the great coaches, some of the great administrators. I just think that's kind of like left on the back burner. Yeah, in my era, you're right, Barry. Uh, when I was a development player, I got a new pair of shoes for the season. So that was <laughs> that was pretty handy for someone who had just finished studying full-time and, you know, used to have a part-time job at like a very amateur retail store. Getting a new pair of basketball shoes was handy, but I do think at the time there was someone I grew up playing with a couple of years younger than me had signed a development player spot for the West Sydney Razorbacks and was apparently getting 30k, whereas <laughs> it's getting shoes. So, um, yeah, it's good that it's changed uh, since then. But um, And in terms of uh, the history of the Caps and the league, the Canberra Caps next to, I would say, the Townsville Fire as well, actually. Funny how you've got connections to both, but um, probably got some of the best fans in the league. Um, But what I've noticed as well with the Caps is, despite their very strong winning history, they have very loyal fans, but they just can't secure a home venue that I feel like is, I'm going to say good enough for the Caps. I'm going to put that out there, which I think... That's a frustrating thing from my behalf that uh, the kind of the fans deserve better. And I know the ACT government has done a great job to secure the National Convention Centre, but it's not the Caps' home. It's, you know, they did a great job of, you know, purpose building a court, but it's, there's no locker rooms as we, you know, we use one shower, one toilet for the males and females for both visiting teams. Yes, it's great that it's air conditioned, there's comfortable seats, but you know, is it really a, a venue built for sport? It was built for conventions and for theatre and acts. 
And that was one of the things where I think was most disappointing to me is over that time that, you know, they went from the AIS Arena days to Tugnarong to then we went to full-time to Tugnarong to then having no venue to then splitting games between the convention centre at Tugnarong and then, you know, the, my, the second last year or last year we were about to play finals and then we had no venue availability because the convention centre was booked out, the AIS Arena had been shut down and we may have had to go on to Tugnarong, if not because that was not air-conditioned, we were looking at options of Wollongong or playing in Sydney. And to me, that kind of like hurt a little bit that we couldn't do that for our fans and, you know, for our players too, is that they deserve better. And a little bit of like, to me, coming over here, I was disappointed because I was like, I don't see that thing changing very quickly. Yeah, I agree. And but you made the point of air conditioning. And just for context for the listeners, remember, WNBL is in summer and summer in Canberra is really hot and dry. And when we used to have training at Belconnen, the doors were open. We had giant fans and I will never forget tra Caps training in summer in Belco ever. So yep. air conditioning is an important point that Gary is making. We've had some practices at the UC courts with the big fan going and doors open, but we even had a game against Perth cancelled one year because of the heat policy, and that was at the arena because the arena's not air-conditioned either. No, That's correct, right. correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, we've got to hope that there's been noises about it, so we've got to hope that Canberra actually is going to get some sort of uh, more permanent facility for the Caps. Because the reality is that they're, they're a really major part of the Canberra landscape, the Canberra social landscape. We went and did a live pod from the National Convention Centre last season. And i got to say, even though the Caps did not have a great season, the place was packed and those fans were absolutely pumped for yeah. the game. I think... Um, yeah, it's uh, like the fans will come and I think that's what we have great fans that whether we're having a good season or a bad season, they will they will turn up and support the players and support the team and I think they deserve better too. And I think it's not only from a Caps perspective too. I think, you know, there's, there's women's netball, there's men's netball, there's volleyball, there's a lot of other sports that could use an indoor arena that's air-conditioned that could seat four or five thousand whatever it may be seven thousand in around canberra i think canberra deserves it not just only the caps but the, the whole of canberra and the act now you've been coaching the nationally as well talking about the the differences between wnbl and coaching nationally and the difference in you know responsibilities and the fact that you've also bringing together players that sometimes don't get a huge amount of time to play together and and to really sort of get that gelling happening how do you look at that how do you approach those sorts of situations yeah i guess that's the hard thing with the national team is we have very little preparation because everyone's spread out all over the world during differing times of the year and so you know, Sandy does a great job of bringing everyone together and trying to get everyone on the same page. And you've just got to make the most of the time you have together in the short amount of time that you really do have. And I think that our best result to me, even though we won our medal in Sydney, to me, our best result was in Spain when we finished with silver for that world championship or that world cup, because we'd spent the month before at home in, in Europe playing games and preparing for that World Cup. And that was, I, I think we played some of our best basketball for the Opals at that World Cup. And so that just came with time away. As I said, we spent a month overseas together preparing for that and the results showed in how we played 
and what we got in a silver medal. And so, you know, it's really difficult because, yeah, as you said, you've got people and also people that aren't used to playing much, like as far as WNBA, then come back to the national program and their starters, or you've got people in WNBL who are used to starting and playing 30, 30 plus minutes and then come to the Opals program and they may be number 9, 10, 11, 12 and have to play a role and not play many minutes. And I guess that's a hard thing to juggle, but Sandy does a great job with just being able to get everyone on the same page, be uh, clear with people's roles. And I think, number one, it's it's always a great thing to put on the green and the gold, no matter where you sit on the bench, you're a starter, whatever, to be able to represent the Opals and be able to put on the green and gold is pretty special. So you should never like discount that uh, as part of being an Australian team and being an Opal. But it's hard to get what you want in in a short amount of time to go to and prepare for an Asia Cup, a, a World Cup, an Olympics, all of those sort of things. And I think that's where sometimes our results haven't been what they have been. It's just purely because of, to me, lack of preparation and lack of time together. Speaking of Opal's duties and World Cup duties, Gori, I quickly ran into you at the Sydney FIBA Women's World Cup. Uh, you had just finished one game and you were off to straight away prepare your scout for the Opals against Belgium and I think what was going to be the round of 16 game. And the, honestly, the fraction of time between finishing one game and you going to prepare would have been less than an hour. So when we say no off days for players, I think that certainly applies to coaches as well. Give us a glimpse into the absolute hectic schedule that is being an Opals coach at a FIBA tournament. Yeah, uh, it is. Uh, it's, I just don't know how to describe it, but I, I I tell Sandy this all the time. I'm like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. That's my, my quote that I have is like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. So I'm just one where um, I love basketball. I love FIBA because of the different styles of different nations and different teams that I'll just go and sit and watch games all the time. But obviously during tournament play where you're playing, you know, every other day and you maybe have a day off, you don't have time to sit around and, you know, celebrate a win or feel bad about a loss. You've just got to, like, move on to the next game and, you know, scouting obviously from an individual standpoint, individual tendencies and then opposition team tendencies and all their sets and their plays, baseline, sideline, ATOs, you know, what different lineups look for them, what plays do they run with different lineups, and then planning on how we need to play against them and what players and what plays are going to work and what schemes we need to have. So it takes up a lot of preparation. I think that I remember on, I think, getting ready for the, the bronze medal game to get ready for that as I think I, I got to bed at 2 or 3 a.m. and woke up at 5.30 a.m. to help finish everything off. And that, that was, you know, Cheryl and Olaf as well, but... I did a little bit more work and because there was a quick turnaround, I had the quarterfinal game. So we found out at midnight or 11.30 p.m. who we were going to be playing and that was my scout the next day. And so, yeah, same thing. I think I stayed up until 3 a.m. downloading games, cutting games, preparing games, then had two hours sleep, woke up again, started to finish off the scout. And I think Sandy said to me by 8 a.m. and she's like, how much time do you need? Where you're at? We'll go to practice, whatever. And I was like, it's done. And she was like, how much sleep did you have? And I was like, sleep when you're dead, Sandy. Sleep when you're dead. I'm ready to go. But I'm a big, as people know me very well, I'm a big coffee fiend. So as long as I've got good coffee, I'll, I'll survive. Now, I was going to say, how much coffee goes into the Coach Gorry system? 
a lot. As I said, people that know me know me. I only like good coffee. I don't do bad shit coffee. So we were lucky. We were lucky around uh, Homebush that there were some good coffee spots. <laughs> some good coffee spots around Homebush that a, a couple of places got to know me by name and by order by the end of it. And I hate to be an enabler, Gory, but uh, I imagine when you travel with the Opals, you're not going to get good coffee everywhere because we're very fortunate in Australia to have good coffee. So have you ever considered trying the cho- chocolate-coated coffee beans as a substitute? <laughs> never, never. I've had to, I guess, get to drink bad coffee at times, which I totally don't like, but at times you have to do what you have to do. Especially at times when you have to go to China. China has not got the best coffee. Oh, yeah. India. India has not got the best coffee. Jordan did not have the best coffee. Jordan did not have the best coffee. They're not places I associate with coffee at all either. So you might even have to pack some of those uh, those really dodgy kind of instant latte sachets. (laughs) I think our team manager, Trish Fallon, used to do that, and I was like, no, I can't drink that. I think um, from memory, when we went to Jordan, I took my Nespresso machine. (laughs) <laughs> and, and i had it set up in the room and it was a it was a very popular little spot cafe girls would be asking for pods every day yeah awesome yeah and so obviously need to know now what's the the preferred coffee of choice for coach gory uh well the problem being i'm in america now and so you know what american coffee's like if i'm at home in australia it's the piccolo i'm a piccolo fan right okay okay so Next Strong time we coffee, but just a little bit of milk. Yep, I'm there. <laughs> Next time we see you at a fever event, we'll have uh, Uber driver send you some piccolo. Some piccolo. Yep. Yeah, I won't say no. I won't say no ever. I'm curious, you know, when you do travel with the team and when you, you're kind of getting out there and doing all those things, what do you find is the, is the biggest challenge you face in the different countries? I mean, you've just mentioned, you know, India, China, Jordan. Uh, each one of those places bring their own set of challenges, you know, cultural differences, all the rest of it. What do you find your biggest challenge in, in those sorts of situations? I think the biggest challenge, I, th- I think, personally, as a coach for the players is, is the food because we all know that playing in tournament-style games, you need good food, nutrition and, and sleep and rest and recovery. And I think that's always the biggest thing in some of those places is what's the food going to be like because obviously you're at the mercy of, you know, their traditions and what they like to cook and like what they have. And so it can become difficult at times that, you know, the team managers have to pack a lot of different kind of like snacks or have food sent over in advance to be able to have that. And our strength and conditioning coaches with the recovery and all those kind of things with food. But it, it can be very challenging because in China, it's, it's not the Chinese food that we know in Australia. It's no. chicken feet, it's rice, it's eyeballs, it's soup, it's, it's whatever it is, and you don't know what's put in front of you. And it's hard to then obviously keep up game after game if you're not got enough nutritional value in your system to be able to back up game after game. So for one, me is like that. And secondly, it's just being able to be in a routine like you're at home you've got you know your favorite coffee shop your own bed your favorite things being on the road for a long amount of time being in a hotel room isn't as glamorous as what people make it out to be no it's not (laughs) yeah i don't think uh honey chicken and sweet and sour pork exist outside australia realistically so actually definitely not a traditional chinese cuisine when you arrive on some of those chinese tour and yet they have the welcoming banquet there is no stir fried chicken vegetables anything like that 
No, it, actually, I have been to mainland China for work, and you, like you said, the food is really different. I did actually get sweet and sour pork in China. Our um, oh. the translator ordered it, but it is absolutely nothing like what we get here. Like it looked totally different. It tasted totally different. And it was actually a good thing. It was actually really good. But uh, yeah, like you said, it's just totally different. We are not used to what they eat on the mainland is just so totally different. Yeah. And I think the last time, I think Cheryl and I took an Opals team to China for a tour. Uh, This was a couple of years ago. And the same thing, we were lucky enough that we're in a newer kind of city. And so there was a little small shopping centre attached to the hotel that had a coffee shop. And so Cheryl and I and the girls would be at the coffee shop all day. And I think by the last three or four days, they knew that we were coming into the hotel, into the dining area, because we just order French fries the whole entire time, because that's all we wanted. So every lunch, every dinner, it was just French fries, please. The four chefs were being requested French fries. Okay, so folks, that's it. The secret to Opal's success is French fries. (laughs) (laughs) when in doubt when in doubt doubt. french fries forever (laughs) so let's just move across to the wnba you're an assistant coach with the atlanta dream how did that come about because it's a big step it's a big jump it is yeah i was really fortunate that obviously sandy uh knew the head coach here tanisha Wright when she first got the job and so I reached out to her and said, if you're looking for like someone for like staff, I know a guy, Sandy had tried to get me to Phoenix a couple of times, but it just didn't work out when she was like coaching there. And then obviously when Sandy got the New York job, there was some talk of maybe a position there, but then the Atlanta job came up and Sandy spoke to them and Olaf spoke to them because he knew Tanisha well. And they gave me a call and had a chat over the phone. And then it was followed up by a, a Zoom interview with, the head coach, Tanisha Wright, and the GM, Dan, had over and had a Zoom interview. And then from that, yeah, that obviously they had other people they wanted to talk to, but Tanisha being a, a first-time like head coach wanted somebody with experience, someone who had head coaching experience on a staff. And so I fitted that kind of like category of the positions I were trying to fill within an assistant coach. Uh, so I had the interview, waited a few weeks, and then – got a message and I'll, I'll you know there's there's things in your life that happen that uh, are just kind of like stranger things than are meant to be but I was awake one morning and sometimes it's just the, the coaching brain never turns off but I was awake one morning and my phone beeped with a message and it was like 3 30 a.m you know I'm awake anyway so I'll like answer the message and it was actually you know Tanisha messaging to offer me the job and so I was just like it was meant to be I was meant to be awake I was meant to get this message <laughs> So I messaged my agent who was in the States at the time and messaged him and said, hey, uh, I've just got this message. And his first reaction was like, what are you doing awake? It's 3.30 a.m. in Australia. And I was was awake. It's just meant to be. (laughs) Um, And then the, the funny thing about it was that they offered me the job. So I had a chat with my agent during that morning. I'd gone to CAPS practice got out of CAPS practice and I'd had all of these missed calls and phone messages from my agent saying, call me back, call me back, it's urgent. So I was like, oh no, this job ain't coming to fruition. And then I'd had, on the same day, I got an offer to be the lead assistant with the Chinese national team. So I had two jobs within the space of six hours come up and obviously had to make a decision and the China thing was unbelievable money, unbelievable money. 
but obviously the WNBA is something that I always, I guess I didn't always aspire to do. I would have liked to have done it, but I knew it was going to be difficult for being obviously an Australian and being male from the other side of the world to get into the WNBA as not being a next player or, or being a coach in that thing. So I spent about two days going back and forth, but just uh, the opportunity to, to be in the best league in the world and to be part of something new and the culture change that they were trying to make here in Atlanta with Tanisha and then Dan, the GM, and what they were trying to build and how they were trying to build it with you know, good people and build it the right way and not necessarily want instant success. They wanted to build the program to be sustainable over the next few years and to build it into a winning program. I was really drawn to that and I thought if I give up this opportunity now to, to come over, it may never come again. So I jumped on board and, and here I am. And culture change you mentioned is a really interesting point. That's what Atlanta Dream were hoping to instill in the next season and having you on board because you've been part in my eyes of a lot of great teams that have great culture including the two Canberra Caps teams that won the back-to-back championships and when you were head coach of that Opals team at the FIBA Women's Asia Cup in Jordan that year the culture of all of those squads that you were head coach of was so apparent on court of how much they committed to each other, committed to your systems. It was super impressive. So it's, it's quite interesting that you bring up that's the, the point that Atlanta Dream needed for their next season. So was that something that they asked specifically in your job interview around culture or is that something they knew about you already? Um, obviously, like I'd given them my resume and CV and about where I'd been and what I'd done. And so they were a little bit aware of what I'd taken the caps from and to. And it wasn't all like just wins with the Caps either. We finished fifth our first season and then lost 12 games in a row my second season and then won five in a row to end the season. And so, you know, there were the ebbs and flows within the coaching game of it's not all going to be, you know, great winning. So it's how to build that culture, how to actually recruit the right kind of people, what it takes to win and be sustainable, where you're going to hit bumps and how you ride through those bumps. and. I guess I was fortunate enough, and I'll always like say this, I was fortunate enough with the Caps to recruit some really good people and some really good players. And I think that my recruitment ethos with the Caps was always good people, hard workers, and then people who wanted to get better, people who wanted to improve. And it probably wasn't until it took me the second season where we had that dip, where we lost the 12 games in a row and then won five at the end to then really sit and think about how I was going to make a difference and what I needed to do to make a difference to make it a winning program. And then Graffy was committed to that. She came in as a GM. But, you know, the sparking light in my brain was like, we needed people who knew how to win because if we were going to get there, it couldn't just be on the back of good people, hard workers and people that wanted to improve their game. We had to have a winning culture and winning culture comes from people who know how to win. And that's where I'm, I made a significant effort to, to chase Kelsey Griffin to get her to Canberra because I know the history that she had with those Bendigo teams of playing winning basketball and winning in big games and in big stages and winning in finals and knowing what it took to win. And then obviously we got Mariana Tolo, same thing, knew what it took to win big games, big moments and could help teach and encourage. And then it just was a snowball like, you know, Kelly Wilson was a great mate of Kelsey's and I'd admired Kelly's game for a long time and so convinced her to, to make the trip up the road and Kelsey was a big factor in getting Kelly in. And then obviously Leilani Mitchell 
she was just like, I just want to win. I just want to play a part of a good team and I want to play with Kelsey. I want to play with Tolo. So those sorts of things. And then we got, you know, the icing on the cake with Kia Nurse. But then I think we did a great job in recruiting some younger players as well because you just can't have all, not older players, but experienced players. You need some young players who want to get better, who want to drive that, who've got some hunger. And that's where, you know, Keely Frolling fitted in, Maddie Rocci, Abby Cabillo. We had, you know, great development players in Alex Delaney who would just come in and work their backside off and make practices better and get better themselves. And so that's how we kind of got about that. But for me, it just is be genuine, be authentic. And for me, it's just number one is like at the end of the day, wins and losses are going to be there. You know, right now, nobody really cares who won the 2017-18 WNBL Championship. What they care about is, or what I care about is, building meaningful relationships, having relationships with those players that are not just around the basketball court. Because uh, number one to me is they're always people. To me, happy players off the court, happy players on the court. So I'll always be number one. It's about you as a person, you know, always checking in. But it, to me, it's just genuine. I, that's that's where my heart lies is I'll coach you as a person, then secondly, as a player, because that's who you are, number one. If I can get the best out of you, by having a great relationship. And I think that just, to me, it just comes natural to me because I'm a giver. I like to give myself to others and it's never been about me. And I think that maybe shows in my teams, that showed in the Asia Cup because we had short preparation time, backs against the wall, but it was all like, we need to be together. This is going to be fun. This is going to be great, but let's just have a crack and have a go and here's how we're going to do it. I love that. I love that so much, Gory. That was really well said. Thank you. How is it working with Tanisha Wright? You know, she's a former player, new to head coach role. What's the dynamic like? Yeah, obviously she played a long time. The WNBA won championships with Seattle, had a very illustrious career, very defensive-minded player, um, tough as nails, played with Lauren in Seattle during that run, played with Sue Burrs, played with some great players. And I think that she brings that hardness and toughness and competitiveness drive into how she coaches, how practices are, and she's very relenting with that and, you know, no excuses given. She has to be like that because we're trying to build the right way and we've got a young group. And so she's very much trying to, I guess, instill in them and teach them what it is to be a pro in the WNBA Mm. because someone like me, I know what it's like to be a a pro in WNBL, but being over here is so totally different as far as playing style, the schedule, those things. And so I guess Tanisha just brings that, the the toughness, the competitiveness, the defensive mind that she had as a player over in and trying to instill that into our team, but at the same time being mindful of how we're building, how we're doing it with our recruitment, um, with how we're playing, what we need to get better at, what the process is going forward. And so, you know, we missed the playoffs last year. We're on track to make the playoffs in year two, and it's just that constant thing of building, 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 but on a day-to-day basis, making people like better. And I think she does a great job of just holding people accountable, holding people in line because the standards are the standards with her and she's got high standards, which is fair enough. And I remember uh, we spoke a little while ago about some of the differences and surprises that you have encountered so far being in the WNBA, one of them being that you have 11 members of staff that travel with you on road trips, <laughs> which I was astounded because, as we know, sometimes WNBL teams don't even travel with a manager, let alone... Well, we didn't with the gas. 
with the Caps, we were allowed to travel with like three staff. So it was always myself, an assistant coach, and the physio. So yeah, I was a bit shocked when we went on our. I'll never forget some of those things. Same thing. You, you never forget things. We went on our first preseason road trip, and I kind of looked around at the airport and looked on the team bus, and I'm like, oh, and you're coming, and you're coming, and you're coming, and you're coming. <laughs> And I was like, okay, everyone's coming, okay, yeah. <laughs> everyone's here, great. <laughs> I think we take our director of basketball operations, a media person, a photography person, social media, our um, physical trainer, our strength and conditioning coach, our video coordinator, and four coaches. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. But and every, and every team does it. Every team does it, so... And, you know, it's great because it's it's a professional league. These are professional people in their own right in their field doing what they do. And so it's, it's great to be able to have all of that support, both for the players and the, the coaching staff. But it, it's great from, I guess, that standpoint. But I think it's just a, a carryover of what happens in college basketball or college sport as well, that they just travel with all of their people. Yeah, that's amazing. That is outstanding. And like you said, it does reflect a certain level of professionalism and you mentioned how Tanisha Wright also has high standards so I like that the standards are being consistent across the board. Um, have Since we had that conversation because I think that was in your first season Gorry, have there been any more pleasant surprises that have popped up as your experience of a WNBA assistant coach? No, this season's longer because I think at this time last year I was on the plane back home and this season's longer because we're playing 40 games. So we've still got nine games left and then playoffs. Ooh. So this season has been a lot a lot longer, uh, a lot more intense, a lot more competitive. And and you just think about over here is like there's no easy games. There's no easy nights where you look and go, oh, that's going to be a win because the players are so good. The league is so tough right now that you can't look at any game and just go, yep, that's going to be a win. We can just rock up tonight. The players are just too good. The league is just too good and growing and getting better. And so it's been a, a tougher, longer season, I think, through that. And we've hit a little bit of a bump in the road right now. We lost you know, our three games on the West Coast road trip. And I think it's that time for a young team and going through those learning curves of how to continue through when you're starting to get tired and fatigued. Now, I think that's a big thing that that Tanisha's kind of like hit on now is we have got a talented group, but we're not experienced mm. and we need that experience to be able to continue to grow, to get better and, you know, lead into playoffs and those kind of things where we want to be on a, on a consistent basis. And that's not one thing you can't coach is experience. Mm. That just comes with time. And another thing is effort. But yeah. imagine everyone's, everyone's putting in effort by the time they get it to the WNBA. So I don't think you have to worry about that so much. But, uh, yeah, you can't, you can't coach experience. But uh, in terms of roster, are uh, your current contracted players contracted for multiple years to enable that experience and I suppose that uh, culture and dynamic to foster over a couple of seasons? Yeah, some are and some aren't. Um, obviously, our rookies have a three-year contract, the ones that come on contract. I think we'll, you know, Cheyenne Parker uh, got an extension and I think the rest will be up for renewal at the end of this season. And so free agency is a different beast over here because you can have restricted free agents, unrestricted free agents. You can core a player. That means that they can't go anywhere else. Yeah, it's it's just it blows my mind. I I haven't got into the whole free agency bit because I'm like I don't need to deal with that. <laughs> so I just kind of stay away and just give my two cents worth when I'm asked. 
And uh, I also remember that I think between your WNBA seasons, you were spending some time attending some NCAAW games, particularly the finals. So it's part of your role as an assistant coach with the Atlanta Dream to keep an eye out on some emerging talent from the college pool of athletes. Yeah, I came back early from Australia just because last year when I was new, it was my first year. By the time we got through COVID and the WNBL season, I got my visa. I arrived here a day before training camp started. So this year I wanted to come back early to see what the process was leading into training camp and help out where I could because we had three players still in Atlanta doing workouts with our workout coach. So um, I was really fortunate that through the process leading up to the draft that Tanisha and Dan sent me on a couple of like trips to scout some college players, uh, which was great. I got to go to a UConn game in Connecticut, got to go and watch South Carolina play LSU in South Carolina. That was a huge, like something unbelievable, something I have not witnessed before. And then obviously got to go to the Final Four, which was great as well. And I went to the, the SEC tournament, which was their tournament to crown their winner. So that was like a four-day tournament. So yeah, it was really great just to be able to go and evaluate some players for Tanisha and Dan, and then obviously go and see what college basketball was about. And then Final Four was on another on another level. It's great. Yeah, what it's all about is mental. That's what it's all about. Absolutely mental. <laughs> the crowds, the people, the fans. It's yeah. It's it's yeah. It's like New South Wales, Queensland, State of Origin times. <laughs> That's one thing I miss. I mean, I, I miss watching the NRL. Now I miss watching the, the Boomers play, their warm-up games. I'm missing all of that right now. I can't comment on uh, the NRL because it's not something that I personally watch. But the, the Boomers games, I think I've also missed. But I think they've been a bit up and down. But, yeah, it is a bit weird when you can't keep up to date with those things. It feels like yeah. you're, you're missing out on, a, on the gossip. Yeah, I was searching frantically last night trying to find a way I could watch some of the Boomers games, but I was like, no, there is no way I can do it. Oh, a bit surprised about that. I, th I thought for sure there would have been some way that you would have been able to see it. I think it's on Fox Sports maybe or KO or something like that, which you can't get over here. Yeah. And um, there's a lot, of, a lot of Australian players over in the WNBA at the moment, I think more than we've ever had. How do you see that working out and are you targeting – Australian talent for your scouting? Yeah, like, number one, yeah, there is a lot of Aussies or quite a few Aussies over here, so it's always good to be able to see them and catch up, you know, pre- and post-games, and it's always good. I think I'm catching up tomorrow night after our game with Alana Smith after we play Chicago. Always catch up with Christy Wallace, Beck, Allen, Sammy, Jade, Ezzy, and our other, I, I say, our other Australian and Kia Nurse. <laughs> I call her our other, our other Aussie. I guess from my perspective in the off-season when I went back to Australia, Tanisha asked me to keep an eye on WNBL, obviously, because I was there, and then keeping an eye on Europe um, across those kind of players. And so it's just mostly just who's going to fit our style, what positions we need, you know, who might get a training camp contract, those kind of things. So obviously is my heart lies with the Australian talent and players, but it's also got to be, you know, right mm. fit and are they ready to come and compete at, at this level? Because you've got to have, I guess, the right mindset, the right toughness to be able to get through this kind of like season. As I said, when you're used to playing in WNBL and for most of them, they're going to be playing, the better players are, are playing 30 plus minutes to come over here and then be a, a role player and play off the bench or not play at all. It, it's tough. But I guess that's the sacrifice you have to make to, to probably play in the best league in the world. 
little bit of a rite of passage, I think, as well, because, you know, going from one particular level up to the next level in your playing career, it looks easy on paper, but it's essentially starting again. Like even going from youth league to NBL one, going from NBL one to WNBL, it's actually quite a, a big leap that people, I think, kind of forget in terms of player development and maturity. But I think uh, now that you've across the NCAAW a little bit more, uh, who are your favourite Aussie athletes that are over there at the moment? I know that you've coached Jazz Shelley before at the Asia Cup and Georgia Amore is going off. Have you yes. got any other prospects in mind? No, like I love, yeah, obviously I know Jazz way back. So, you know, obviously Jazz, I keep in contact with her every now and again. I've had messages back and forth, but we haven't been able to connect personally. But, you know, Georgia Amore has, has blown my mind about how much she has improved and then the notoriety she's got obviously around USA, but within college women's basketball. And I've chatted to her a couple of times, but I've, I've missed times. I've seen her play here at Georgia Tech, which is just down the road here and then obviously got to see her play at the final four oh yeah i think she's a great pro they're both great prospects for us right now there's a lot of aussies at davidson college as well they've got an aussie pipeline there so i went and saw one of their games when i was in washington but you know it's, it's that difficult thing of too as as you said jacinda about people going between different levels it's also being able to go from either the college level or WNBL level into Opals or into a, a FIBA style level because just I, I think people get caught up in well just because they're a good WNBL player they should be in the Opals or they should be a starter for the like it's it's different it's different about how people weave into their role and accept their role and how they are from a WNBL perspective compared to being an international player and the same from college how they go from now we see it how these college kids come into the WNBA because the college is so different. To, you know, you're a pro now. You've got to look after yourself. You've got to do your own things. You don't have to worry about study anymore. But the intensity level, the IQ level, and the physicality is just so high. So I think it's how those, what you said, is how those people transition in between different levels is certainly not just going to be a given that you're a good college player or a good WNBL player so you can make it over here or anywhere, whatever level it is. doesn't necessarily mean you're a good NBL1 player that you can be WNBL, but some can be for sure in the right circumstance with the right opportunity, but it's not just a given that it's going to happen. Yeah, I totally agree. Particularly, I'm glad you made the point between being a great WNBL player doesn't automatically translate into being a great Opals player or being on the Opals roster at all because we forget that an Opals roster is the best players from all of the teams playing the same positions, um, competing for the same roles, and obviously some are going to be better than others in terms of skill set, experience, whatever, but also uh, who's going to be able to play in the best combinations under the best kind of system Sandy's putting in place, and that's not always going to be the same people on a regular WNBL who is scoring, you know, 15 yeah. to 30 points because their role is going to be so different. And exactly. people very easily forget mm. that. Yeah, it's like who can play a role for what they need or for what we need. But also it's interesting that, you know, it's, it's typical social media. People can make comments and anyone can make comments. But to me is behind the scenes what happens at training camps and who's doing well, who fits well with who how they play their role, all of that stuff is people don't see that some some WNBL players come in and for what they are in WNBL just aren't that in the Opals mm. just because they just their game doesn't fit or 
the style doesn't fit or the role doesn't fit in how they are, does that make them any less of a player? No, it just doesn't match with what we need with Opals or how they're either skill set or how they fit into the team. Yeah, and like you mentioned as well, the off-court stuff also holds some weight in terms of the harmony off the court. That always translates to the harmony on the court as well. And so when it comes down to making the final cut, uh, you've got two people to choose from to make that 12th spot. Are you going to go with the kid that is an absolute, you know, gun on the bench, getting along with everyone off court or the person who is perhaps a not so much the same you you got to pick culture and camaraderie over yeah. over uh, something else sometimes yeah and because as you know like tournament play well it's short it's still a long time when you're away from home and how how are you going to be if you're not playing are you going to still be able to be up cheering waving the towel and get back up the next day and still be the same while not playing or maybe not get the opportunity to play those things have a lasting effect on a team too because those kind of traits can either bring a team down or help them fire them up. So it's a, it's a delicate balance in putting together that kind of team. Mm. I've got to say that one of the people that's really su- not surprised me, but I've been really impressed with the way she stepped into the WNBA is Jade Melbourne. She just turned 21. I think we forget that because, first of all, we've been seeing her play for so long, but also the maturity that she showed last year's cap season and in the WNBA. I mean, it's just amazing to watch. Yeah, her growth, I sent her a happy birthday message saying, oh, when you went from 12 to 21 very quickly, Jade. <laughs> she sure did. Yeah. And, that, and, I, and I meant it like in, in the right way that she's come from like this kid that, you know, we plucked out of the centre of excellence to take on the COVID year to the mm. WNBL bubble to then, you know, wrestling her away from going to college to stay and play WNBL to then, you know, getting a gig with uh, the Opals for the Asia Cup and then obviously being a significant contributor to Veely's year last year as as a leader um, and her playing at a higher level, her role both on and off the court, you know, with the caps. She's just going to continue to grow and grow. And as, as I said to her today, I was like, this experience is going to make you a whole lot better both on and off the court not only just for her personally, but within basketball, both WNBL, Opals moving forward. And, you know, she's a great kid that she approaches it the right way. Great teammate, is is grateful for every minute that she gets and is soaking it all up. And I think she's got some really good people around her in Ezzy and Sammy and, and Kia Nurse to help guide her in, in that Seattle program too. And when she went into this WNBA season, as we know, especially from the last few years, the WNBA draft, you know, lots of great college prospects being drafted only to be Mm. cut, you know, soon after. It's very cutthroat, which is understandable. So great that Jade got drafted, but I think everyone had that hesitation of, oh, my gosh, please don't cut her because, you know, she's the nation's (laughs) sweetheart. We're all rooting for her. And then as we got closer and closer to the season, she's still on the roster, still on the roster. And I knew that she'd do well. But to be honest, I am absolutely gobsmacked of how well she's actually done, A, to secure a roster spot for the season, but B, getting more and more minutes, being more and more productive. Like her growth is just like someone needs to do a study in that because it's unbelievable. And I think she's the kind of kid too that doesn't hold on to anything much. She's always bright, bubbly. Mm -hmm whether she's playing, you know, and it might churn on the inside, but she'll never outwardly show it. And I remember speaking to her early when she kind of counselled me and she goes, oh, do you you think I'm ready to go on the draft? Do you think I'm ready to go over for training camp? And I was like, mate, when when are you going to be ready? 
you might as well now take it while you can and while you're playing good basketball, take the opportunity. And if you get cut, you get cut, but go in with the attitude that you're going in to make the team. And I think Seattle was a good opportunity that with the retirement of Sue and some other people like leaving that they needed guards. And mm. Jade's just quickness, her ability to be a good teammate, all of that thing I, I thought was going to stand her in good stead. I was surprised, but I wasn't that she actually, you know, made the team because I knew what she'd go into training camp and bring. And having someone like you said, like having Esley and Sammy there would have been a massive helper, Opal's sisters to kind of guide her in the right direction and provide that reassurance. But, you know, she's, for a young kid, she has uh, endured a lot of successes, but with those successes have come a lot of uh, challenges. So you mentioned she played in that Asia Cup tournament under you in Jordan, but a week before that, she was at the Under-19s Women's World Cup. This was yep. at a time of COVID as well, which meant that players had to quarantine even on the way there, but especially on the way back home. So she had to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks, at least twice. Yeah, yeah. And then last year, having the leadership of the Caps on her shoulders as a, what, 19, 20-year-old, there were times where she was really feeling it, but she did the right thing of reaching out to people for help when she was feeling a little bit down and out. And, I mean, that maturity of a player of that age to go and seek help when they know that they, hey, I'm, I'm feeling a certain way, I need to chalk it out. Wow, like outstanding person as megan huswait says the goat of your all humans <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that's a great quote yeah she certainly is yeah she's older than what she she looks she's older than what she looks she only looks like she's 12 but she's definitely <laughs> old as a, as a mature mind and, and that's the great thing for her too is like really putting her into that leadership role was definitely a, a growth area for jade and as you said like yeah there's always areas you can grow in and get better and i think she took that on great as well as trying to be like you know their go-to player as well yeah i, I think looking at uh, the way she performed last season particularly given you know the struggles that the caps had the injuries that it's just everything at the last game of the season she was still there smile on her face hey i'm here to do my best and you know i'm sure as a coach you just are constantly looking for someone with that attitude. Yeah, and that's the thing. When you talk about people being like, role, not everyone's going to be a starter, but people playing a role, accepting their role and being able to like bring other things other than just the basketball side of things, Jade definitely does that. You know, she's the first one up with a towel, waving, cheering into the game. And, you know, that's uh, that's the great thing for a young kid to do that. She's only just mm. like starting off. And I think that she's got a great attitude towards it all, and she's going to have a, a very, very long, successful career. So I, I want to change gears a little bit. You sent some photos through to us. There was one that got my attention, and I was really curious about it. It was a photo of you guys on courtside, and you were wearing the same plaid trousers. <laughs> same, the same as Kia Nurse. Was that the photo? Yeah. <laughs> we did laugh about that too. <laughs> we did laugh about that. Very, very similar, same pants. Yep. How, how did that? She told me I always wanted to be like her, so that's why I did it. <laughs> yep. As only Kianos could do. Yep. That was not in any way intentional at all, but we both turned up for the game and we had both the plaid pants on. <laughs> I just kept on saying, like, I, I was trying to follow her style. <laughs> 
So can we now expect you to, uh, you know, game day drip is very popular in the WNBA now on social media platforms. Can we expect you to follow her current game day drip on some of the Atlanta Dream social media platforms, Gory? There is no Gory game day drip. Like, <laughs> I have way too much competition with these girls. <laughs> these girls, like, bring out their best and the game, you know, even our coaches, Tanisha Wright and Barb Turner, bring out their best too. I was like, I can't compete. <laughs> and it hurts my soul at times is like i love sneakers and i love good sneakers like i'm down to like a, a b here compared to some of the sneakers that some of these girls and and tanisha has and barb has oh i can't compete so you won't see me on the drip wall at any time <laughs> okay so look just wrapping things up i want to ask you what's next for gory what what do you see as your your direction that's a, a good question, and the only answer I have is, like, I don't know. And this is, to be honest, is, like, I've never, I guess, planned anything with my coaching career or this was the hard part is, like, being at the Institute, you'd always have coaches come up as, like, how do I get this job? How do I get that job? How do I be a national team coach? How do I coach the Gems? How do I coach the Emus? How do I... And I'm just kind of like, I'm the wrong person to tell you because while internally I'd go, maybe I like to do that, I would never say it externally and because i just fell into coaching and got given opportunities along the way that regardless whether i fell into a right timing like right place i never kind of went i'm going to coach the the gems i'm going to coach the opals at asia cup i'm going to be an opals and assistant i'm going to be a WNBA assistant i never had those Growing up as a player, and as I said like right at the very start, I wasn't a very good player. All I wanted to do was to go to the AIS. That's all I wanted to do as a player, and I knew I wasn't good enough, but I tried. <laughs> and then, obviously, then when I got into coaching, I was like, well, this is the next best thing is I just want to be a coach. And I think back then the scholarship coaches were every two years because they had a male for one year, a female assistant with the women's program the next and I think I applied for eight years full on. I think to this day, I, I joke with Patrick Hunt going, I think you just gave me the job because you were sick of me applying every year. <laughs> there, there was this guy that just kept applying every year, every year, every year. And that was my only goal in coaching was like, I wanted to go to the AAS because that was the pinnacle of obviously the best coaches, the best players, all the facilities, the resources. And so that was my goal kind of like as a coach when – Either, you know, to me, that was heaven when I got the job as a scholarship coach. And then when I got to the chance to go back and be an assistant, I was like, that's just it. I could, I could be done tomorrow and all my dreams have been fulfilled. I'm at the AIS with the best coaches, the best players, best resources, best physios, best medical staff. And so I've never planned anything. I've never really gone, I want to do that next. I want to do that next. Other than... And, I, and I've said this for years to my, my agent, I'd really love to coach in Italy. Why? Because good coffee, great culture. That's the only reason why. It's like, that's the only reason why. Because I go and drink coffee all day and they've got a great culture and great lifestyle. But to be honest, mate, is like I've got, and it sounds bad that I've got no goals in a way, but to me is number one, It's it always has been about make the players better, coach the right way, as I said, going back, be generous, do the best, you know, because players have goals too and my, I'm a servant to them. My job is to make them better to achieve their goals. It's, it's never been about, hey, if you don't win, I'm not going to get that job or I'm not going to get an extension. It's never been about that. So 
to me, it's always look after the players first, do the right things by them, coach them the right way, play the game the right way, and be respectful to the game. That's brought me so much joy and luck, and I love the game. So to me, I was like, I don't, I don't plan about I want to do that next. And people kind of go to me, oh, do you want to be a WNBA head coach? I was like, I really don't care. Mm. If that opportunity come up, would I say no? But it really doesn't matter. Like I, I'm here and I've got to be present and be in this moment because I think people start to get too far ahead of themselves and that's when they get caught about being in the moment and doing the, your job to the best of your ability. And the same with everything else is like, when I come back to WNBL, people go, oh, are you going to be the next Opals? Oh, who cares? Like, that's all hearsay. And, like, that's that's not up to me. I don't have any control over any of those things. So my biggest thing is help the players become better, teach them the right way, you know, continually get better as a coach and as a person, I think. And are we going to see you uh, around during the WNBL season? I don't know. I'm coming back to Australia, put it that way. I'm coming back, so... Um, I'm sure you'll see me at some WNBL games, hanging out, going to some practices. Like last year, I hung out in Canberra for a while and hung out with Veerly and went to some Caps practices and games and went and spent some time with Kennedy um, in mm. Bendigo because I've got a close relationship with him and obviously with Kelsey. I caught up with them and, and hung out there. I went and watched a Melbourne Boomers practice and hung out with Chris Lucas. So yeah, I'll be around because I, you know, I'm an Aussie. I love it. My heart's with Australian basketball. My heart's with the WNBL. And so you won't be able to keep me away from that at all. I'll be back. I'll be back. Awesome. Paul, thanks so much for your time. It's been great having you on, great talking to you, and we'll be watching what happens for the rest of the season with uh, the Atlanta Dream for you. Thank you so much and appreciate your time. And, uh, and I know it's been hard to try and get the timing right, but appreciate both of your time. And, you know, being able to have me on the show, I really appreciate it. And, and thanks to you too for putting basketball out there in a format where people can, like, listen and learn, and, and, and it's great. great. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.